Hello everyone, we're back with another segment of our Trademarks Walkthrough Historical Capitalism. I'm joined again by the lads, uh, Sean and Stevie. I won't give them their titles this time because everybody knows who they are and I don't want to give them any air of pretense. <laughs> um, so where did we leave off the last time, Stevie? Well, we tried to, I think we talked mostly about, well, initially why we do this work, but also how we do it. And how we do it kind of took us through that idea of providing people with broad brushstrokes of history to understand kind of those key moments in history that provide people with an understanding about how this system that now dominates our planet, 99% of it, how it came uh, to be. Because there's kind of an embedded understanding that it's always been here, or that capitalism is part of human nature, or that it's natural. And Sean was very um, insistent last time on reminding us all how it's not natural, it's violent, it's coercive, it's supported by the state, and it's a, and it's a, and it's a, and it's a creation in part of the state and of yeah. imperialism. So, uh, and, and we kind of finished on that Marx's idea of primitive accumulation, that kind of early stage of proto-capitalism, which included the Golden Triangle, the African slave trade, uh, the brutality of the plantations in the Americas, the emergence, of course, with the slave trade of, of modern racism, the drawing of a colour line across the globe. Not sure if you mentioned that last time, but the idea that you know white becomes associated with civilization and black skin becomes associated with violence and evil and backwardness. Another legacy of fucking capitalism. And, that, and, and that idea that primitive accumulation allowed the West and parts of us to build up huge amounts of resource and indeed power and the emergence of a new class of people, the share-owning class, who were then able to kind of have access to the necessary assets to control and then to employ another class of people that was emerging then after that period and that's the, the as we would understand it as the, as the working class so we kind of got up to that point I think okay so uh, there's vast amounts of money vast amounts of new wealth being created with this this golden triangle a new class of people emerging um, you can now lend money at interest and mm -hmm. uh, so what happens all of this surplus capital when it comes back into the emerging new economies of well, you get, England you get the and Holland? Kind of, it's, it's, it's that idea, the next stage of capitalism, if you like, the next piece of the domino that falls is, is the emergence of an urban working class um, and how that urban working class is forged kind of violently out of a dispossessed peasantry, uh, particularly, as we said, you know, in England. Uh, and it's that issue of, well, why were the peasantry dispossessed? How did they come to be dispossessed? what were the changes taking place, particularly in parts of England. And that was really about land ownership. Um, and so you kind of had the, the enclosures. Most people, are, certainly for me, from a, a London background, in an English curriculum, it was a big part of what we learned about school. But it was all mm -hmm. kind of a nice, peaceful process. And it was about building hedges around fields. And it was all about the agricultural revolution. And it was about breeding pigs and cattle. And it was, all very, it was a nice story I was taught in school, this period of enclosures. But when you look at it in detail, it was a violent dispossession of land by a tiny group of people. Um, the monarchy were involved, but it was also kind of the new bourgeoisie. And it was a land grab. It was really, the enclosures was really a, revol a revolution of the rich, for the rich. Uh, so you see like um, use rights, traditional use rights, they call them. The idea that you had access to water, you had access to rivers, you had access to fishing or to land or to forests. All of that was done away with in the 16th and 17th century. Um, I think we mentioned though before, Ellie Meeksin's Woods, in the origin of capitalism it's a great book she, she says it was kind of the first big privatisation programme in history and you think that 400 years later in England particularly 50% of all the land is still owned by less than 1% of the population it was fucking incredible statistic and that began during that period of enclosures yeah so it was the state it was the state working in hand with the with the rich um, 
to institute a mass privatisation of common land um, and they did that through coercion, through violent means and through legal means. Of course, they introduced uh, enclosure acts uh, mm-hmm. over the course of uh, a few decades to, to set that process in motion and give it legal standing. Marx called it, Marx called that period of the, this idea when tens of thousands of peasants are forced off the land during this period, this early period of what you call it, agrarian capitalism. Agrarian the capitalism. Phrase, the phrase you used. Yeah. That, you know, the people that were forced off the land were then punished by the state. And there's huge amounts of legislation coming in the 16th and 17th century that makes it illegal for you to be poor, that makes it illegal for you to be indigent, and yet you've got no other choice because you've just been forced off land. So it's a real attack upon the, the peasantry, rural peasantry in England. So what you have was, uh, and this is key to understanding the emergence and development of capitalism, and this is like Ellen Mason's word, a uh, key point, I suppose, is that the transformation of social relationships, of property mm. relations, occurred on the land first domestically yeah. in England. It occurred most uh, quickly and dramatically in England. So you had an increasing concentration of land ownership amongst the lords. Um, with this new power, they're able to do new things. So they're able to introduce new productive techniques uh, to the land. They're able to introduce things such as a lease, um, which you know they, they, they give out leases, sell leases to, uh, to what become tenants. And there's a massive increase in the number of tenant farmers um, who who are then forced to compete with one another in order to, to pay their rent uh, to the Lord. So you get and competition you get competition. Arriving, you get the idea that land is about making profit. It's not yeah. about traditional use rights anymore. That are kind of old, almost Anglo-Saxon mm. ways of um, organising agriculture it just gets, just gets you know, yeah. shafted. I mean, there's a really good book I remember reading as a young lad, Carl Polanyi, The Great Transformation. It goes into that in a lot of detail, this idea of moving from pre-capitalist societies. In Britain, it was kind of Anglo-Saxon. There were old traditional village ways of working land. There was common access to common land and so on. In Ireland, it was a clan system. In other parts, there were different kinds of economic systems that were completely trashed and replaced mm. over time by initially agrarian capitalism. And the key, the key thing with the tenant farmers is that those who were competitive, productive, successful... Mm become sort of proto-capitalist. So they move upwards in the in the social hierarchy. Those who are less successful uh, drop into the, the category of what we know as wage labour. So they become agricultural labourers. They work for the tenants, they work for the lords, or uh, they're they're forced off the land, and that and creates another process. Yeah, and the people, and the ones forced off the land who are turned into illegal indigents are then press ganged in the military service or the navy service as England's military power grows and it its colonial empire grows, the dispossessed pentry, peasantry have been forced into Britain's armies to go and conquer the rest of the planet, or England's armies to go and conquer the rest of the planet. Do you see classes, class divisions begin to emerge yeah. in, a, in, a, in a clear way, uh, mm-hmm. first in England and then in other parts Marx of called it, Europe? Marx called that period, like, he said it ironically, that the, the people were freed from control over the means of production. And that's crucial mm-hmm. to understand though, that before that, the, the peasants as bad as their lives were in some ways, although there's some research to show that actually they live quite good lives. There's a, a brilliant uh, letter written in the 18, as late as the 1830s from the Dublin government to the Westminster government complaining that the Irish peasantry only worked 200 days a year because that's all they had to work and then they had 150 days a year off because you didn't have to work all the time because mm-hmm. you weren't being disciplined by this new economic system. Um, but that's kind of what happens is that workers are freed, peasants are freed, ironically as Mark said it, from the, the means of production. I mean, they had no access to 
making food and growing food. They're no access to making their own clothes. They're no access to making their own things. Um, and they lose that control over the means of production because the control over the means of producing the things that human beings need to live passes to another class, passes to a new emerging class. So that's what we mean by control of the means of production. Wasn't there a philosophical underpinning for that? That is maybe... There's a lot of debate about that. I don't know, there's a, lot of, there's a lot of disagreement about it. You know that whole Weberian idea of the Protestant work ethic mm. that emerges out of the Reformation that people use and it kind of linked into stuff that was happening in England. Thomas More wrote a book, 15 something, 15, on utopia and John Locke also wrote about it. It was all about this thing called the theory of improvement that emerged, the idea that if you, if you owned anything or if you owned a bit of land, it was your responsibility to improve that land. Now by improve, they mean make it more productive, which is dead on, but they also mean make it profitable yeah. in new markets. And that idea that it became nearly a theoretical underpinning for dispossession, because they could turn around and say, well, see this pre-capitalist or this clan-based or this whatever it would be, village-based system of agriculture, we could do it a lot more efficiently than you and make it more productive. So really, we have a responsibility to take it off your hands. And that, that dispossession of land in England and that, that theory of improvement was used as a theoretical underpinning. That was also used as part of the English colonial project in Ireland, because they came to Ireland and said, well, look at the way these fucking... Paddies are fucking using the land. Look at the way that this clan system is working. It's all yeah. based on tradition and clan and relations and kin networks. That's all balls. We've got a far more efficient system. And if you don't adopt our new efficient agricultural system, tell you what, we'll just do it for you. We'll just fuck you off the land. Yeah. And so that's what happened. They probably Ireland didn't well. say it quite like that. They may not have used as many expletives as I did. <laughs> and, you know what I mean? But um, uh, I don't think people were too worried about being sworn at when they're being fucking yeah. ripped off the land mill. So we've got enclosure and, uh, and now, of course, plantation. Well, it's the same process over basically mm. 150, 200 years. What happened in England happened in Ireland. It's just in Ireland it was more violent, and as Sean said, it was part of a wider colonial project that had within it kind of proto-racist elements of the dirty Gael and the, the backward Gael and you know, non-English speaking, obviously not Protestant at this stage, remaining in the, mm. the old phase. So that was an additional kind of uh, dynamic that occurred as part of the colonial project. But, but economically, the same thing's happening. You're clearing native peoples or clearing native ways of doing things or older ways of doing things and replacing them with um, a new system, a new agricultural system which was based upon issue of ownership, private ownership, but also profit. Uh, so that happened in England and it's happening in Ireland, you know. Yeah, you say, that, you say the first sort of private plantations happening in Ireland around the early 1500s, isn't mm, it? Late, yeah, late 1400s, right. early 1500s. But under Bloody Mary, actually. Yeah. place under Bloody Mary and then under, under Elizabeth. Uh, but it's not until the, the mid-1600s are really kicks in in a state sponsored way like. yeah but that, the enclosures and the plantations and then it happens again of course like it's happening in the Americas at this time as well of course and, and the colonial plant that kicks off but it then moves to Scotland um, mm-hmm. you know during the clearances and that's in the kind of the, that doesn't occur really till the 1700s so it's probably till after Culloden after the, the end of the Gaelic system in Scotland 1745 the Jacobite Rebellion where you see the, the end of that Scot- Scottish Gaelic clan system difference there was of course it wasn't um you know, it was it was the Scots clan leaders themselves that that kind of became the new bourgeoisie land ownership class. You know, and they cleared their own people off the land. And I think 1792 or three or whatever was called Blian Nakira, Blian and Nakira, the year of the sheep, where you had the last of the major clearances. So the and the key thing is here, I suppose, is that this is part of the reason why we teach the historical capitalism is because it happened in different places at different times and at different speeds and in different ways. You see, it's a long historical process that begins um, in in the 1400s, 1500s in, in some places and begins in others in the 1700s. 
so you get this massive transformation in that period and, and you know in, in colonial terms you're, you're seeing the room of accumulation and the commercial hunting of black skins as Mark said in the, in the, in the colonial world and at home we're seeing mass dispossession of the peasantry across the water in Ireland you're seeing mass dispossession of clan lands and the transformation of Ireland into a really into a beef farm to feed the emerging urban working class of England then of course the same thing happens in Scotland where you know you get the production of lamb and mutton and wherever else again to feed the English uh, urban working class and in fact Ireland doesn't progress after that period it's held as kind of because that, that's its job its job is simply to provide food for, for England you know? So this new urban working class as you uh, call it is something new what are the, what are these people doing? What are they? What it's, are a long, they it's a long. We, we, Sean doesn't like the way we do this in the class because <laughs> it's, it's a really long and complicated process. The idea of uh, if you think of cotton, particularly coming back into England, and initially that cotton's coming in, it's, it's it, uh, revolutionary markets, it's revolutionising what we wear and how we wear clothes, and moving from like wool and leather to to cotton and stuff, and it be, it's processed by weavers. Um, in, in cottage industries, that's where the term mm. comes from. So literally someone's in a cottage in a village and they're buying off a middleman and they're weaving it and they're selling onto a middleman. Mm. All that begins to change um, dramatically. So you move, that those people are direct producers of cotton in the same way that they're direct producers of their own food. That, that, that relationship they have with the land and the relationship they have with the product they're making and the profits they're making from it begins to change then in the 1700s. And the one example we use, and again, you have to use an example, I think, sometimes to tell the story is Arkwright, classic entrepreneur, mm. name in it of uh, the village of Cromford in Derbyshire and he's um, credited with not really true but he's often credited with having the first manufactory as he called it or factory in the, on the world and it was a, it was a, a factory for processing cotton uh, one of the things so, and it was about centralising technology he had new technology was his spinning jenny he was a spinning jenny got that right and, um, and it was just a way to process the cotton into cloth that was quicker faster and cheaper yeah. than the, the weavers were doing in their villages and so over time the villagers around that area move into that centralised factory they're given a tied house they're given a weekly wage and they become wage labourers yeah. but yeah. they and they take the deal because it seems secure they've got a weekly wage they've got a nice house many uh, people no have security. no option yeah. <clears throat> many many others have no, no option but to, but to take it they have yeah. nothing to go to it's funny that we picked that example of Arkwright because when I was doing this course and uh, listening to ski and I mentioned Arkwright just as an example that we're throwing out. People sat up in the chairs. You know, I thought it, I've hit on something here, and they were saying, you know, Arkwright, Cromford, Derbyshire, mm -hmm. they were the same people that set up the textile mills around well, that area yeah, of County yeah. Fermanagh. And, well, that's, that's perfect because it shows you what happened because yeah. Arkwright's mill became the model for everybody else. Yeah. Those factories didn't close until the 1990s. Is that right? Yeah, it was called the English Sewing Company. Hmm. Um, but it shows you what happened there because what happened people came to Arkwright's Mill and thought that's a good idea centralising production bringing labour into a centralised place using technology to outbeat and outpace any other producers then of course you have competition within the capitalist system set up so factory begins to compete with other factories mm. uh, and then more and more people move into these urban centres now they have no control over their own means of production they're not making their own clothes anymore they're not producing their own food so that, that kicks off factories that are making clothes and processing food so everything becomes made now or gradually over time over the next quite quickly actually in England it only takes about 50 years thousands of factories appear everywhere to make the food to produce the clothes to produce the furniture for these new urban working class and these people are compelled 
to sell their labour in order that they can buy these products mm-hmm. to, to sustain themselves. Your woman called it, again, makes his words a brilliant phrase, she calls it the silent compunction of the market. Yeah. That you have, you know, once you lose your own ownership of the means of production as a, as a villager, as a, as a peasant, you have no choice but to sell your labour in the marketplace. And the capitalist says, well, you're free to go somewhere else yeah. and do what? Yeah, sell your labour in the market. It doesn't matter where you go, you've only got one option here. Um, but capitalism begins to straight away invent that myth it's really strong it says look we're all equal in the market is it is it the market that drives innovation so the development of steam and coal fire well, it's competition it's competition yeah it's competition between them but also access to markets it's about the rails and making sure that products can be moved quickly from ports to cities and into urban areas and so on but I was, I was going to refer to that idea of the myth that capitalism starts to build up about itself emerges almost immediately and it's that, it's that myth that everyone's equal in a marketplace that mm. you know the seller of labour that's us is equivalent to the buyer of labour and Marx called it what did he say he said there's nothing more unequal than the equal treatment of unequals the idea that a fucking labourer selling his labour to a factory owner that those two people are equal in the market it's a fucking nonsense that is, it's a free exchange yeah it's a free exchange <laughs> it's a nonsense that, that the worker has no alternative but to sell his or her labour into the marketplace that's again Meekson's Woods phrase a silent compulsion looks free but you know, you get you, 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 your freedom's being sliced away from you. are selling yourself bit by bit into a marketplace. Yeah. So it's an illusion of freedom around the marketplace. It doesn't actually exist when you look into it. And that's the beauty of Marx's analysis, of course. So very quickly then, people from uh, agrarian communities that would have had access to alternative resources mm. if times got bad are now wage earners dependent on that wage with no alternative resources. That's exactly it. And, and that, that applies to the land and an ur- urban yeah, setting. Yeah. It's in rural and, and urban settings. That's it. And so you get, um, you, know, you get the idea that you can only sell your labour. Outside of that, you're indigent. Uh, you're illegal. So if you're not employed in labour, you become an illegal in, 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 your, in the terms of that, in your own country, if you like. Because you know, they almost make poverty illegal. And that's where you get the poor laws, you get the importance of workhouses, and poverty becomes a natural mm. state for you, but it becomes an illegal state for you. You know, um, and at the same time, though, capitalism is also inventing these myths that legitimise its own presence, its own power, its own its own exploitation. You know, and those those myths become fucking deeply embedded. I mean, as I said, the ideas of the ruling class are ever the ideas of the age, and it's and it's been that way since the birth of capitalism. Right? And very quickly, this system becomes extremely brutal. The working t- conditions are are horrible. What was it Engels? Was it said the dark satanic mills of yeah. northern England? Um, because these new uh, industrialists, I suppose, are, are forced to compete against one another. The profit motive is kicked mm-hmm. in, so they're forcing wage labourers to work harder and longer. They're employing children and women constantly, working 18-hour days in horrible conditions. I mean, John Locke, the father of fucking liberalism, he, he wondered if the commencement of labour shouldn't be three years old. He suggested that, the kids should be brought into these factories at three years old. Daniel Defoe said four years old. And I mean, Jeremy Bentham suggested that the state should set up a privately owned company where they could um, put to work the criminal poor, he called them. I, anyone who didn't have a job was criminally poor. You weren't unemployed, you were criminally poor. And he says, um, a great, great quote, he says, in which dross of this land can be converted into sterling. And it's a fucking brilliant quote because it, it gives you an, an insight into the emerging mentality and the sociopathic nature of the capitalist bourgeois so, class. And they still, you see it in Boris Johnson today, that hatred of the poor, that, that exception that chavs and working class and unemployed, they're just fucking scumbags. That idea has been there from the birth of capitalism, but it's, a, it's created. No, it's, it's a created idea that if you're not in work, you're just scum. So is that the, the, the creation of, of this, this new economy creates a new ideology as well? 
to accompany it, to underpin well, you need it. an ideology to legitimise it, don't you? You need, you need to create stories and narratives and myths around capitalism that legitimise fucking mass slavery, the genocide in the third world, and you know, the violent dispossession of peasants in Britain and, and a short of the dark satanic mills and all that. You need a strong ideology to make that seem normal. I mean, racism was invented to excuse slavery. You know, mm. we're not, you know, these people aren't humans, they're animals, we're doing them a favour. Capitalism always invents these stories to legitimise what is clearly fucking illegitimate. You know what I mean? Exploitation, expropriation, extractivism, slavery. These things aren't legitimate ways for human beings to live. And that's, that's where you get the, the classical economists, you know, writing about how this is the natural order of things. Adam Smith and, mm-hmm. and, and the likes. And you get that idea embedded from and Smith the, and others. That, you know, it's man's natural... Uh, states of barter, truck and exchange i.e. I. this system is normal and is an expression of human values and so people become convinced by that oh, it's dog eat dog world isn't it, you go out there the cream rises to the top and you go into a pub and there's some bloke with no fucking arse in his trousers defending the capitalist system because he's been convinced that that's the only system that can work for him even though he's clearly a victim of it you stupid you well know? what happens is that those with economic and political power, you know the new, the new cla- capitalist class uh, take up these ideas and begin to propagate them as, uh, mm-hmm. you know, as the gospel. Yeah. So at this stage in the course, um, participants start to have light bulb moments, don't they? They start to sort of make sense of the, the world around them and see why history is important to their story today. Well, they do in the sense of everyone understands the factory system and everyone understands what work is like and this idea that you know, you're in a system now that it seems so normal to us that we never question it. The idea that you're disciplined by work you have to be somewhere at a certain time, you have to punch that clock, you have to stay there. And this idea of, I'm always amazed by it, that people accept it so easily. They accept it because they have to, I suppose, but also they buy into it, the idea of this tyranny of work. You have to go somewhere where one person is allowed to dictate to you where and when you can sit, sit up, sit down, go for a shit, have a cup of tea, and that's completely normal. We wouldn't accept that, and we haven't accepted it in a, in a democratic sense. Have we? Outside, we're saying we don't want tyranny, we want freedom, we want democracy. But as soon as you go through the factory gates or the workplace, apparently tyranny... In, in, in that system is okay, uh, and we're convinced to accept it. So um, the the system's up and running, um, and the international capital that comes home to uh, England and Holland starts to um, uh, make more out of out of what they've got. Um, but the contradictions in the system are there to be seen, aren't they? Well, the contradictions emerge almost immediately, don't they? I mean, one of the um, uh, Marx notices it, others notice it too, but the cyclical nature of capitalism, the idea that you're going to get these, you know, these incredible periods of growth followed by kind of crashes, and there's one in the 18, I think the year for early is 1830s, isn't there? Then there's a massive one, of course, in 1873, and people begin to study that, Marx is studying that, trying to understand why this happens, but those contradictions in capitalism are, you know, they're ones of, if you think of um, capitalism, we move from a position pre-capitalism of scarcity and famine to one of capitalist amazing capacity to produce things and of course what it does then is overproduces and so you get the glut in a market you get a collapse in prices you get the collapse in profits therefore you get the laying off of workers the closing of factories and so you get boom and you get bust and in the mid 19th century people begin to look at that because they're living through these massive booms and busting and what the fuck's going on here and how do we understand this and one of the, again to bring it back to one of the advantages of teaching historical capitalism is that we we point out the inbuilt contradictions within the system and we point out how it's destined to the way it's the very way it's structured um the very way it's it's guided by uh the profit motive that it's destined to boom and it's destined to collapse 
at, at certain periods in time. And so you get crises of overproduction is one of the first kind of characteristics of capitalism. And you get another kind of contradiction, which is poverty in the midst of plenty. So you got all this stuff uh, being made because capitalism can produce in ways that other modes of production couldn't. But now no one's got any money to buy the stuff. Mm-hmm. So you get you know crises of overproduction, poverty in the midst of plenty, and an underconsumption, and a drop in demand. And, and people like yeah. Marx and others are studying this and trying to get yeah. their head around. But you've also got a philosophy that says that that market will correct itself. Well, yeah, the solution is to destroy the value of all existing capital. Now, that means the capital, capital withdrawal, they close factories, they lay people off, and you have fucking mass immigration, starvation, all, and all the rest of the, the consequences of that. As you said, that polite word they use, corrections in the market. We're, yeah. we're about to go through one at the moment, aren't we? Mm-hmm. And you get particularly sinister expressions of, of those views from the likes of Thomas Malthus and people like that, you know, writing about the, the Irish famine, that, you know, it's just a correction in the market. State shouldn't intervene and... You know the, the yeah, massive the massive population de- decline that Ireland suffered at the time was just you know the market doing its work and that was restoring the system back to its natural natural right, way yeah. of being. Yeah, the Economist, I remember, the Economist was founded Thin in the herd. 1843, yeah. and they they put that out that you know the government could just give free money to the, the Irish because that would destroy the natural. And that's that word again, the natural workings of the market, as if the market was natural, as if it wasn't a coercive, created, and state-controlled, um, you know arena for profits you know and you're, you're seeing that same language again now not even before the coronavirus thing here that the, the the seeping out of that ideology that sociopathic ideology you can see it in some of that eco-fascist thing mm. that Malthusian thing we can't afford that there isn't enough money uh, we can't afford schools and hospitals we need to thin the herd a bit I mean even you know it was in the Daily Telegraph yesterday someone says one it's, it's terrible that all these infirm and old people are going to die next it was actually it's quite, could, quite a good thing for the economy if all these old firm and ill people well, die that attitude's been there from the yeah. birth of the system well Boris Johnson said it, didn't he he said it on it. TV yesterday he just let it slip didn't he yeah. you know maybe we should just take it on the chin yeah. so I mean that's how these people this, these ideas of 19th century ideas still pervade very much today. Oh, they're very strong. That, that idea of the Darwinian struggle between the weak and the strong becomes corrupted as part of that capitalist uh, legit, you know, legitimising narrative, saying, well, actually, the people who do well in society are clearly the better people. They're clearly the cream of the crop. Cream rises to the top. As we would always say, shit floats too. But people like Johnson believe that. Mm-hmm. Trump, he's, he's, he's had many times in the past where he's talked about you know, he comes from good breeding and good stock and good blood. These people think of humans as farmers think of cattle. You know? And if there's a weak one in the group, they mm-hmm. fucking get rid of it, just do away with it. It's quite fascist in its own way. Like, no? mm-hmm. but it's, I'm convinced it's part of the you know, secret conversations that the, the super wealthy have. You know? They're kind of enjoying this, actually, because it might thin the fucking herd out a bit, as you said. Mm-hmm. Right? Fucking sociopaths. Yeah. So when we talk about this period in, in the class and, of course, the, uh, that period of, of laissez-faire um, uh, economics, the first time that the system's given a name, uh, there's another, you, you know, we start to, people start to see the patterns, the contradictions in capitalism, and they can see there's something coming, isn't there? I mean, this system has just gone up from its, from its birth, suffered sort of many recessions, but it's, it's flying stocks and shares are at an all-time high and you know we know that there's only one way it can go when does that occur when 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 does it happen show well the the system that is sort of born in england it very quickly expands not just england but across western europe uh and then into into america and it it expands massively and we see a huge accumulation of of capital 
huge amounts of speculation in, mm. in certain areas of, of the economy. Uh, I think railroads were the big one at mm. the time, weren't they? Yeah, a lot of Googles and Ebays and Apples at their time, you know, the railway corporations. And we know that if we look back in, in retrospect, uh, look at all the major crashes in, in the capitalist system that they're preceded by a speculative boom. Mm. Um, so what we do in, what we do in the class is we usually um, ask people to, to describe the depression, what they know, or tell us what they know about the depression, um, and what do we get to do? Oh, everyone goes 1929, mm. Great Depression, and you catch every fucker out every time. There's not one person in hundreds of these courses that we've run there that's ever said, actually... I think they're talking about the long depression of 1873. No one's ever got it like that. But it shows you the extent to which it's been written out of history. And it shows you as well that other kind of part of the capitalist ideology is that it hates history. Mm. It hates looking back. It hates addressing things that happened in the past because it only wants to look forward and the drive forward. But for us as Marxists, we need to look back to understand how the system is, you know, the cyclical nature of capitalism, it's imperative for growth, it's imperative for capital accumulation. And the fact that it, when it booms, it will always fucking bust. So um, many of the characteristics of the of the long depression would be familiar with people today. Yeah, almost as if we're talking about this very moment. Um, so what you have is you have a speculative boom in Western Europe and and the Americas, um, followed by, of course, the uh, the bubble bursts and there's there's a collapse. There's a collapse of the financial system of banking. Um, Shares in German companies lose sixty percent mm. of their value. Uh, stock exchanges, stock exchanges, go bust. Railroad yeah. companies go bust. Banks go bust. The whole thing. States now, go bankrupt. We're yeah, familiar yeah. with that. Um, but it's really funny because it, when you're looking through the dates of all of this in the 1870s, it's like 1873, whatever. The Vienna Stock Exchange goes under, and then it says 1880, no, London Stock Exchange goes under. It's like a seven-year gap, and it, that's how slow it took for yeah. capitalism to collapse around Northern Europe North America and then we asked pundits how long did it take in 2008 and it was fucking 24 hours less you know Lehman Brothers went in America the next day their office in London was people walking out <laughs> crying carrying their little boxes remember their little fucking green plants and their pictures of skiing holidays empathy Stevie empathy no empathy for those plants um, but, but it, it's the speed at which capitalism and the interconnected nature of it you can compare it to an but the same thing happens though that's the point the same thing has happened yeah. 100 years apart you know and one of the interesting things that happened, and uh, Lenin wrote about this uh, in the late 19th century, early John, John Lenin. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I am the walrus. class heroes. Lenin wrote about this. Is one of the things that happened at this time, and this happened after every crash. As you see, monopolisation. So all those railroad companies mm. and banks that go out of business, that collapse, are bought quickly bought over by the by the bigger corporate interests they're they're operating at the time so you have big banks and financial institutions and corporate you know non-financial corporate uh, institutions in france britain uh germany and to a lesser extent russia buying up all of these but the, of other these thing, the other thing is distinguishes the cyclical nature and this this boom bust nature i mean you know orthodox economists simply call it the business cycle but it's a bit more serious than just calling it a business cycle because one of the other characteristics is imperialism and the, the, the second period of imperialism, you might call it, in the 1870s and 80s, that whenever capitalism goes into collapse, it looks for ways to re-establish its profits. And one of the ways, of course, that had, had been the case since the 1780s, and the entire British Empire was built up, wasn't it, in the 1800s, particularly in its, its pillage of, of India and the Indian subcontinent, the way to restore profits is 
is to conquer new markets and new resources by war and violence and imperialism. Yeah. And Britain, and not just Britain, all of the Western powers decide in the 1870s and 80s, well, no, we're going to do that again, we're going to start now. Make people buy your products whether you want them to or not. And steal their resources while you're steal at it. Steal raw materials, yeah. And that's, and that's how the world works. And you need, as Sean says, and Sean's right to keep re-emphasising the point, you need a state willing to wage war on behalf of the manufacturers. That's the nature of capitalism, people forget. You need yeah. to expand the markets. I mean, so with this, the analogy we always use is capitalism is like if you drop a stone in a pond and over time and space the ripples pass out across the pond, that's capitalism spreading historically, geographically and spatially across time and space. And it has to always move out across the planet. Um, and the 1880s is another period of massive expansion of, of capitalism's influence through through the imperial project of, I don't know when the date was now, when was it? 1880. Berlin Conference. Berlin Conference. Yeah, so I always use that to visualise, mm-hmm. you know, the, the the dramatic takeover of the African continent by the by the great powers, by the great imperial powers who are who are starting to butt That's heads. Um, but I mean, now, if you look price. at the stats, eighteen eighty, ten percent of Africa is in European hands. Usually, some ports around the edges, you know, South Africa and so on, and other parts of um, West Africa. By nineteen hundred, ninety percent of Africa is under European occupation and it's so quick 20 years bam the entire continent is in European control um, and the entire was, continent and, except Ethiopia yeah I love the Ethiopians like, I know, or Abyssinia as, as was and people always ask why why on the map because there's that maybe there's a white thing on the map that's in Ethiopia and they had a king there Christian a king, king, it was Christian for a start but they had a king there King Teodros III I always remember his name and he says whenever Europeans come here he says we have the land and they have the Bible he says and suddenly we have their Bible and they have our land the Ethiopians knew, but also they were Christians from a very early period, from a thousand years beforehand. So they had, they were kind of a centralised, quite strong, quite well-established state. But the rest of Africa becomes under, is under European control. I mean, Britain took the largest slice of the pie in north-south. Uh, France went east-west. Germany took Namibia and parts of Angola and so on. Portugal was in there, wasn't it, with mm-hmm. Madagascar and other parts of Angola. and they spent Angola, Angola, and, and they, they spent the next hundred years basically um, ripping the heart out of Africa. And you always show how they actually sat down around the table mm. and started drawing straight lines on the on you the map, just carving out territories. You always knew there's been a European there because there's a straight line on the map, and the, the lines between the the borders between like you know Egypt and, and Sudan and stuff just a straight line across the map, cutting across rivers and tributaries <laughs> and mountains, and of course ethnic groups and linguistic groups and religious groups, and you know locking in future conflict mm. which is beneficial for European powers because you can play one yeah. group off against another and that's been the history of European imperialism and, and it still is today if you look at the Middle East you know so of course very quickly that amical uh, sort of diplomatic way of carving up the continent starts to start to break down as mm. the, the British and the French look at Germany and say actually Germany's coming up behind us here like yeah. they're actually starting to uh, catch up with us yeah so you get imperial competition or, or national capitalism's Competing on an imperial level across across Africa, but you, you can't underestimate the damage done to Africa during that period. I mean, yeah. we can't, again, we kind of write out of history. When you ask people to talk about the scramble for Africa, or ask people in the group, have you ever heard of the scramble for Africa? You know, most people have no clue, and yet it's a really important part of human history because the, what was done in Africa was huge fucking crime, really. If you think of what was his name, the Belgian king, king Leopold. Yeah. Great book, by the way, King Leopold's Ghost. I can't remember the. I can't remember the geezer's name who wrote it, but King Leopold's Ghost, if anyone's interested, describes that period of what, what Belgium did. I have a link there, don't we? What Belgium did in the Congo, between five and ten million people dead in the space of twenty years, um, in the in the hunt for 
product that became very useful and very important for the, for the next stage of capitalist development. So what was done to Africa was necessary for capitalism to get back on its feet, and that was the hunt for rubber, uh, initially for laying communications cables across the globe. So there's a story, nice story, communication. We can speak to people in America, you can pick up the phone, we love all that, we love it. And yet the price paid for it was a price paid by the people of the Congo and other parts of Africa, yeah. in the millions, like. Yeah, we're talking millions, yeah. So there's always that story in capitalism. We, you only ever hear one side of the story. There's two sides to this system. And the other side is covered, as Mark said, in blood and dirt. It comes into the world covered in blood and dirt. And the story of Africa and the scandal cafe is that, is that story. And the story, the, the story you're talking about in Belgium, um, that same story applies to various countries around mm. the African continent to a greater or lesser extent. Absolutely, yeah. Um, there was an, there's another great book I read. I, I must reread actually by John Tully, an um, Australian trade unionist, called The Devil's Milk, and it's I think it's got the social history of rubber. Um, a superb book that describes not just what one in the Congo in the terms of you know rubber gets all, all rubber then wasn't there's was no synthetic rubber. I think we made a point the other day it was all, it was all natural rubber. But then they moved those plantations to the, to South America to be closer to the emerging what yeah. was going to be the car industry. Another story of horrendous I mean slavery and murder and genocide that took place in, in the Americas in the rubber plantations. So yeah. these, these stories of capitalism are never told. Yeah. You know we just look at the things we have around us now. So it's a great system and it's. So the, the system really depends on imperialism and uh, the, the two run parallel with and each it, other. And, and it depends entirely on, on, on ex- explo- mass exploitation of the global south. Did in 1870 and still does today in 2020. No, it hasn't changed really. Like, no. um, but the good thing about the African experiment for the West was it, it, it succeeded to some degree in rebooting the system. Yeah, but there's one imperial power that we didn't talk about in relation to Africa. So where, where did... Um, the United States go? Or how did they drag themselves out of this terrible depression? Well, the, the, the US uh, opted out of uh, involving themselves in a, in a European conflict scramble for, for territories and for resources for the most part. Um, and they chose instead to expand west. There's a whole western part of the, the North American continent that hadn't yet been conquered. Um, where Native American uh, people resided after being banished there for, mm-hmm. during the first during the first conquest mm-hmm. they that they suffered so they they expanded they expanded west and of course you tell the story of the, the John Ford westerns mm-hmm. they're all the same story aren't all they? the same story yeah the dispossessed families moving for a new life in the west accompanied by the dodgy businessman who's fallen on hard times dusty suit and all the rest. Um, and, and the great hero, yeah. you know, the John Wayne figure that makes sure they get through all these nasty Indians yeah. to Barbarian Indians. Yeah. But again, it's the same story. Not only is it, I mean, if you, if you stand back and look at that story, one against the dispossession of native people, yeah. it's clearing a native people population out of the way, it's clearing a pre capitalist way of living out of the way, regardless of judgment of whether it's better or worse, clear that out of the way so that the new system of land ownership, land production can take place, laying of railroads. And then you invent a story to legitimise that mass murder and genocide, and it's called Manifest Destiny. Yeah. And then you create an entire fucking TV industry called Hollywood that further legitimises it. When I grew up, you know, those stories of Manifest Destiny were part of my growing up. I believed yeah. in all of that stuff. And then you, you read, Carry My Heart, I Wounded Nemi in 19, and you go, fuck me, I didn't, yeah. didn't think that happened. That's of course, they, they, they everyone would have been the cowboy, didn't they? No, no, yeah, everyone yeah. would be the cowboy. But the Americans also went to Guam and Hawaii mm-hmm. and the Philippines oh, yeah. at this period as well, and yeah. butted heads with the Spanish Empire. Mm-hmm. And 
Um, so uh, yeah, and you start to see the emergence of the idea of America's backyard. Yeah. You know, that, that we have a right to conquer the rest of this. Yeah. But the one of the most common, perhaps one of the it didn't involve America at that time, of course. But one of the consequences of that scramble for Africa, and Sean said, the butting together of these imperial powers was was an arms race. Um, maybe we should leave that one there and talk about that next time. Yeah, well, there, there's also the, the notion that you um, protect your industry as well. So it, it was something, protectionism, very much a feature of, of the modern um, uh, Trumpianism and, and also a factor in the German economy that you protect your indigenous industry. Mm. Are you suggesting the entire European Union was created to protect German manufacturing? Yeah, That's yeah. very controversial. I have to pick you up on that. You said that. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so um, we, we've now uh, taking ourselves right into the modern era um, so where do we go next in our, our, our uh, study of well of I think modern you, capitalism? At, um, you know the idea that national capitalisms in their search for re-establishing profits in Africa begin to come into conflict and that yep. leads eventually to the great conflagration that is the first world war, first world war. Mm-hmm. Yeah. and what, it's not about plucky little Belgium is it no fuck Belgium Okay. Well, maybe we'll start uh, our next session with uh, plucky little Belgium story yeah. and, the, and the, the First World War. Um, so we'll, we'll see you all next week. Slangafoil.